You're listening to Irreverent Bible Talk, a podcast that's not your grandma's Bible study, unless your grandma happens to be really, really cool. Listener discretion is advised if you object to bad words, women preachers, or terrible puns. Welcome back to Irreverent Bible Talk. I'm Jenny. I'm a Lutheran pastor and a bit of a nerd. And I'm Josh, and I'm an audio guy, and I'm also a little bit of a... Well, let's face it, a lot of bit of a nerd. Yeah, it's it's fair. I like it. Today on the podcast, we are talking about Philemon, one of the letters in the New Testament. Philemon. I like the emphasis on the mon. Yes, like Digimon or Pokemon. Philemon. So grab a beer, a mocktail, a cup of coffee, or your beverage of choice, and join us as we find out how the Bible is more fascinating and more complicated than you might expect. Josh, what are you drinking? Uh, Today, I am having, again, I'm having a rum and cola. And it'll stay a cola until we get that that sponsorship from the red can. Which we know is just around the corner. Right. Anytime now, they're going to be like, you know what we need? We need that Bible talk audience. But not like a praise Jesus, like a, hey, what is this? How does this work? Audience. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So, Jenny, what are you drinking? I am drinking one of my favorite beers. It's from Figueroa Mountain, and it is the Hoppy Poppy IPA, which is fun to say. Hoppy Poppy. That is really fun. I mean, I'm not a big IPA person, but I would probably drink it just because the name is cute. It is pretty cute. Can't really argue with it. Josh, I don't know if we need to talk about Digimon. We started this episode and we went on a real long tangent about Digimon because it sounds like Philemon. And then I realized that I wasn't recording. So all of that is lost. Which is, uh, it is a, it's a thing that happens. Um, I once have recorded a lady, had her record this paragraph that I had for work, had to record this spot, stopped it. I was going to go save, but when I stopped it, it deleted that whole track. So I had to very kindly ask her to go back in the booth and re-record it. She was fine with it. She understood. Like, things happen. But I was mortified, and I'm still terrified months after the fact, because... Oh, you hate to see it. It's just heartbreaking. You hate to see it. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But yeah, we could mention, uh, what's your your, uh, favorite Digimon and or Pokemon? Oh, see, now you're changing the rules, because Pokemon is way easier. Well, I want both. Okay, fine. Okay, Pokemon, my favorite starter is still Cyndaquil. I love Cyndaquil. So cute. Uh, Digimon, we were talking about how, and Josh and I both had like a very vague memory of Digimon, but the kid brother in the like original seasons had a little Digimon that just looked like a loaf of bread with flappy ears. And that Digimon, Patamon, had an insane glow up into like a giant 12 foot tall angel with abs and that was that was real inspiring yeah that is that was like professional wrestler like model angel yeah Yeah. and they worry they worry that like queer media is can like you know breaking our kids but like apparently weird digimon glow-ups are fine yeah yeah that's all cool because it's animated i guess josh what's your favorite digimon Oh, my favorite Digimon. I had to Google it earlier because I couldn't remember the name. I think it's Agumon, A-G-U-M-O-N. It's the little T-Rex looking thing. It looks like, yeah, like a chunky little T-Rex. Mm-hmm. Very cute. And I, yeah, that voice was just so distinctive and obnoxious, but it was cute when it all worked out. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. How about Pokemon? Oh, well, how much time do we have? No. You asked me, and I gave you a short answer. Um, I've said it before in the podcast, and I'll say it again. My favorite starter is still and always will be Charmander. Gotta love Charmander. First Pokemon ever picked. Always the... I'm always usually a fire, a fire type, but... Forever in our hearts. Except for this last one where we all picked Weed Cat. Leaf Cat. It doesn't... It, Weed Cat. It evolves into Weed Cat. This is true. If you don't know what we're talking about... Don't worry about it. It's fine. The cat's animation <laughs> looks makes it look super stoned. Yeah. Anyway, now that we've impressed our listeners with our nerd knowledge, let's yes. talk about Philemon. Philemon. Philemon? Yes. So 
we are going to talk about this uh, letter, and I want to start just by addressing the name of it because I don't know for certain what the correct way is to pronounce it. I have heard Philemon, Philemon, Philemon. I, all of those are potentially correct. Um, in the Greek, it looks like the emphasis is on the second syllable, so that might be closer to Philemon. But whatever. If you're reading it in church, just say it really confidently and everyone will think you're smart. Wrong and strong. That's that's the way to go with announcing stuff. That's the way to go. Absolutely. Uh, this is one of the letters in the New Testament. It was written by Paul uh, and it's very short. Uh, so, Josh, I know you uh, listened to it in preparation for this episode. And how long did it take to listen to this entire letter? Um. I did multiple times listening to it, but the first time it only took about, gosh, three minutes, if that. I mean, it was, it is a quick listen. Now, granted, I had no idea what was going on, so I listened to it at least four more times, trying to understand it. Did not help. Had to read through it. Did not understand it. <laughs> then, uh, I, then I watched some videos on the YouTubes about what was actually going on and led to this. Made some sense then. Yeah, there's a lot of backstory where you kind of have to read between the lines and fill in the gaps a little bit. Uh, so we'll get into it. But yeah, it's very short. So some of Paul's letters, like Romans in particular, is so long and so dense and so like theologically complex. I don't even know how we would do it on the podcast. Maybe we will someday. Uh, but this is a nice kind of bite-sized piece of Paul and has some good... Um, introductions to his theology so i thought this would be a an interesting one to do great place to start yeah short and sweet short and sweet all right so i am curious josh uh before we get into the backstory and we get into like what's going on in this letter i just kind of want to hear like what were your first impressions well my first impression were really confused because you know it starts off paul a prisoner and then it says to philemon and then our dear friend, and then it lays out Aphia, our sister, Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Like that, right away, I was like, wait a minute, what the hell's happening? Who are these people? I thought it was the book of Phi like Philemon's letter, not these other two. And yeah, I was just really confused. And like, when it talked about his son, like, wait a minute, what, who, what? Paul had a son? But he's in prison, said his, I don't have, yeah. I was completely lost. It took me a while. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah, it's a short book, but there's like a lot packed in there. And like I said, a lot sort of behind the scenes that you might not know what's going on. So maybe we'll just start because you already brought up the like introduction. And so maybe we'll start there, you know, start at the beginning. It makes sense. It's a very good place to start. It's a very good place to start. It's easy. As uh, nope, I'm going to stop myself. <laughs> yeah, we don't. Yeah. We don't have licensing for that. I don't need that Julie Andrews lawyers coming after me. Absolutely not. So Paul's letters are, they are a specific type of writing that was common in the ancient world, known as an epistle. And the kind of short explanation is that an epistle is just a letter, but it's kind of more formal than just a letter. And it follows a certain structure. Like, there are pieces that are always going to be there. In Paul's case, all of his letters are kind of public letters because they're being written to Christian communities. So Paul would write this letter and send it off with, you know, a courier or a messenger or whatever. And it would be delivered to whoever it was supposed to be delivered to. And then they would literally read it out loud to the community. So, you know, the next Sunday when everybody gathered in Corinth or, you know, Philippi, they'd be like, we got a letter from Paul. And then they would read it to everyone. So they were always kind of intended for a community. But uh, his letters all follow a format. And if you ever had to learn, this is like a generational thing. I don't think kids today have to learn this, but... If you had to learn in school how to do like formal letter writing where you had like all the formatting and you put the date and you put your name and you put like to whom you're writing, that's kind of what Paul's letters do. They follow this format. I've read our emails back and forth. We do not necessarily follow those rules anymore. 
No, they've kind of gone by the wayside. Not a lot of formal letter writing happening these days. Because sometimes we get emails that just say, yeet. <laughs> sometimes you just get an email reply back and it's four emojis and you have no idea mm -hmm. what it means. Smiley face, angry face, slap, and clapping. Snowman. Oh, okay. Yeah, what? <laughs> so it always starts with, okay, who is the letter from? Who is the letter addressed to? A greeting and then a like Thanksgiving. That's always how Paul's letters start. They're kind of formalized. And even within those introductions, Paul is already usually kind of laying some groundwork of what the point of the letter is. Um, I do have to note uh, that Galatians is the exception to this. And at some point I want to do a whole episode on Galatians. So I'm not going to like spill all the tea right now. But in Galatians, Paul leaves out the Thanksgivings. And if you're paying attention to that format, it's it really changes the tone of the letter. But anyway, today is we're not talking about Galatians. So the letter is from Paul and Timothy. He says, Timothy, our brother, here we're talking about, and this is again going to be part of the whole letter, we're talking about like brother in Christ, right? So not a biological brother, but a, a co-worker, a member of the community. And Paul specifies that he's a prisoner. We know from Paul's writings that he was imprisoned uh, several times in the course of his ministry. So apparently when he's writing this letter, he is writing it from prison or from some kind of house arrest. And it's addressed uh, primarily to Philemon. And Paul describes Philemon as our dear friend and co-worker. And then also to a couple other people who we can assume are part of the same Christian community, the same congregation, if you will. Aphia, Archippus, uh, and to the church in your house. So in the early church, the first Christian communities were gathering in people's households. They didn't have big cathedrals like the big church building like concept wasn't really adopted by Christianity until after Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire. And all of those big buildings like the basilicas, that was actually a Roman thing, not originally a Christian thing, but Christians moved into those kinds of spaces. Anyway, so Philemon is probably somebody and we'll, we'll gather more details about him as we go, but probably somebody who was fairly wealthy and would have had a larger house. And so the person who had a larger space would often be the one that would kind of host the church in their home. And so every Sunday or, or maybe multiple times during the week, the Christian community would gather in the home of somebody like Philemon to do church. And so when Paul says to the church in your house, that's probably quite literal, like the church that gathers at Philemon's house every week. That's who this letter is being addressed to. Huh. That's interesting because I know at this time, too, you know, Christianity was still had some persecution going on in that empire. And so it's pretty shocking to me that that letter like clearly states in your house, Philemon, like this is where this church is like, whoa. That seems a little risky. Yeah, and, and I do think it's important to to know that Christianity wasn't, like, underground. Like, it wasn't sanctioned, but the amount of persecution kind of varied depending on who was emperor. And we talked about this a little bit when we talked about Revelation and the kind of historical background to that book. There were periods where the persecution got a lot worse. But in the, the early days, and Paul's writings are the earliest Christian documents that we have, in those early, you know, decades, Christianity was just sort of like a, a weird step-sibling of Judaism. And so it was, it was kind of tolerated and it was sort of like confusing to a lot of non-Christians, but it wasn't like it had to be secret. It had to be underground. So it's not like, you know, the Romans are waiting to like bash down Philemon's door and like drag everybody off to jail. Mm -hmm. That makes a little more sense then. Yeah, totally. So this letter is going to be about... 
Philemon and specifically about what Paul wants Philemon to do. But it's interesting, like Paul is making it a public letter, right? So like the church in this place is all going to know what Paul said to Philemon. And there's sort of some social pressure there, right? If Paul had sent a private message to Philemon and then Philemon didn't do what Paul wanted, maybe no one would know. But Paul is making this public. Uh, And so it's going to look really bad. And also it's going to get back to Paul if Philemon doesn't do what Paul wants him to do. This letter is interesting. One of the reasons I like it is because it does put, there's like so much rhetorical skill at play that Paul is really, really sort of juicing this thing to get what he wants. And the like social pressure is just one piece of that. So we're going to get into like more of what this is about. But even from those first couple verses, Paul is laying the groundwork of what he wants to accomplish, which is kind of cool. From your kind of exploration of what this book is about, what were the the like themes or topics that kind of jumped out to you, Josh, as you were working through this? The idea of slavery comes up um, because the individual, I can't remember the name without... Yeah. Visited Paul, was a runaway slave, and obviously Paul could get in more trouble for protecting them, but also then reaches out and be like, hey, he didn't do anything wrong. Why don't you just uh, forget all this, free him, and just let's go. Let's continue on. Mm-hmm. So that, yeah, that slavery, I think, is like the big, one of the big topics. And then treating people as, you know, equals and fairness and still brothers, sisters in Christ, and all, yeah, in that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so this letter from Paul to Philemon is, a. it really centers around this third character, and that character is Onesimus, who I believe is first mentioned in verse 10, and the the whole letter really revolves around Onesimus, What we know um, just from the text is that Onesimus is a slave who belonged to Philemon. And the couple of interpretations, kind of the traditional view is that Onesimus was a runaway, that he had fled and then gone to Paul um, for like assistance or sanctuary or protection or something. Another possibility is that Onesimus wasn't a runaway, but that there was some kind of conflict where maybe Philemon accused Onesimus of like financial mishandling of Philemon's property or something. And so Onesimus is going to Paul as like a mediator. So less of a, you know, underground railroad escaping slavery and more of, you know, this is a workplace dispute and you're going to like bring in Paul, who is like the HR department uh, in this situation. That's another possibility just based on sort of what historians know of how things worked uh, at the time. And, And which reading you favor does kind of change the tone a little bit, right? Like, is this, is Onesimus somebody who is, uh, breaking the law in the eyes of society by running away and potentially by like stealing something from Philemon because there's this question of like financial harm or is Onesimus as I said more of like trying to handle a dispute with his employer when we talk about this letter like we have to talk about slavery because that's such a major part of the whole letter and and I do think it's important. I want to say two things. The first thing is that slavery in the Roman world was not the same as transatlantic slave trade that we learn about in school, unless we're in school in Florida. I am not saying that like slavery in the Roman Empire was hunky-dory, um, but I do think it's helpful to just know that there are some differences. So like what happened in the transatlantic slave trade is that masses of people were kidnapped in primarily Western Africa, um, shipped across um, the Atlantic, 
and sold into chattel slavery that was also hereditary. So if you were sold into slavery, then your children were born into slavery and your grandchildren and so on and so forth. And so it was like permanent, multi-generational, like I, I can't overstate how incredibly harmful and wrong that was. In the Roman world, again, I'm not saying that it was cool, but I am trying to put a little bit more nuance on it because slavery was sometimes, sometimes it was people who were like prisoners of war because Rome was conquering everybody. It could also be sort of like a financial debt, right? That if you owed somebody money you couldn't pay back, you might have to work for them as like an indentured servant for a period of time. But in the Roman world, there wasn't this intergenerational aspect to it. It wasn't hereditary. So it wasn't like Onesimus is a slave and therefore all of Onesimus's descendants are going to be slaves. And there also wasn't this like racial system built on top of that. It wasn't like, oh, the people who are owning slaves are, you know, morally and inherently superior to those slaves that are more animalistic, which is the kind of language that you get if you look at how people talked about slavery coming out of Africa. So it's a little bit more nuanced. Again, I don't want to say that, like, it was fine because I think it was still wrong. But this sort of leads into the second point I want to make, which is that in the period, especially in the United States leading up to the Civil War, this letter was absolutely used as justification for slavery. So the people who owned slaves and who were like financially profiting from slavery absolutely wanted to justify what they were doing and say that it was biblical. And they pointed to this letter as one of their pieces of evidence of like, well, Paul sent his sent Onesimus back to his slave owner, right? Like, that's how we should be, which is such a disingenuous use of scripture and also just a bad reading of what this letter is about, as we'll get into. But it's also really kind of like apples and oranges, right? It's like, Oh, well, the Bible says that Cain killed Abel, therefore I should be allowed to murder people. It's like, no, this is like a fully different situation. Um, so I just, I want to kind of put that out there as a, uh, I don't know, public service announcement. That's fair. That's uh, actually interesting because like you said, it's a bad reading. Um, that is like the complete opposite of what Paul is like asking for. Like, yes, he sent Onesimus back, but it was under that like, pressure to Philemon like hey you need to free this dude you need to stop owning slaves it's not good yes absolutely and that is really what Paul is trying to accomplish with this you see it if if you look in like verses 15 and 16 of the letter that Paul is saying okay I'm sending Onesimus back to you but I want you to receive him no longer as a slave but as your beloved brother And we're going to kind of get into exactly what Paul is implying with that. Paul is saying to Philemon, if you're a Christian and Onesimus is a Christian and you're in Christian community, you cannot keep Onesimus as a slave. That is antithetical to what it means to be Christian. You just like you just can't. You cannot keep Onesimus as a slave because of what it means to be a Christian. So that's kind of Paul's main goal here. And the way that he is going to kind of build that argument, not only to really make it hard for Philemon to say no, but then also there's a lot of kind of important theology that's built in this letter that still applies today as we try to figure out what it means to be Christian. So I think this letter is really cool in that regard. It's very short and compact and about a very specific thing, but it's also a great introduction to what is Paul all about? Like, what's his whole theology? And it's, I mean, I might be getting ahead of us a little bit, but it's it's funny because it's like, hey, you need to do this. You need to do that. And uh, you should get ready because I'm going to come check on you and make sure that this is done. Yeah, it's, (laughs) it's really interesting. Seems like a very parental response. Like, hey, you need to clean your room. And I'm going to come 
make sure that you've cleaned your room in like 20 minutes. So absolutely. Get it done. Yeah. And I love that you bring up that parental language because that is part of what Paul is doing is like drawing on uh, family relationships. Mm hmm. But yeah, this is just like brilliant rhetorical writing. Like every single line, Paul is like turning up the pressure on Philemon uh, while still being like so polite, uh, which I love. And that's funny because I didn't necessarily see it as like, I see it more as like a almost a smugness. Like, hey, <laughs> I'm calling you out in front of all your friends, your family. And everybody that you need to, you respect as, you know, your church leaders, I'm calling you out to do this, even though what you're doing is perfectly legal under law and mm -hmm. everyday acceptable, but I don't think you should be doing it. Mm -hmm. It's just such a peer pressure-y kind of, I don't want to say bully tactic, but it does feel like he's kind of bullying him into being like, hey, do the right thing, which obviously is the right thing. I'm not condoning Philemon owning slaves and anything, but it is just that the way Paul is just like, nah, nah, brah, you're going to do this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and it's like a little bit passive aggressive. Like Paul says, like, I preferred to do nothing without your consent. He's like, oh, Philemon, it's obviously up to you what you're going to do, but also like, fuck you if you don't do the right thing. Right. <laughs> uh, it is kind of yeah, kind of irritating, but also a good thing. It's it's mm -hmm. great. It's great. So there's a couple of things I want to make sure we talk about here. And one is there's a lot of wordplay in this letter. And so as that kind of comes up, I want to highlight it. There's a lot. Paul is doing a lot in the Greek of like using words that sound similar to make his point more powerful. And the other thing that is going on here, which you already kind of alluded to, is this language about family dynamics and sort of the inherent power structures. And Paul shifting from this is what the status quo was, the relationship between these characters, to what is the new status quo that Paul wants among these characters. We see the family stuff coming in, like I said, from the very beginning, right? That Paul refers to Timothy as a brother, Aphia as a sister. Um, so there is immediately this language of like, we are in the family of God, right? This is a huge image in the New Testament, in Christian community to this day, right? My brother in Christ, my sister in Christ. My cat in Christ. My kitten in Christ, which is what we say to our kitten when he's being really bad. And uh, there's also sometimes the language of being like a father, like Paul is described as a father in the faith toward people who he brought to faith, right? So if Paul is the reason you became a Christian, you might refer to Paul as a father in that sense, right? That like Paul was in the church and then Paul brought you into the church. And so Paul is sort of a patriarch, a mentor figure to those that he brought to faith. So does that lead into why some churches revere their pastors or priests as fathers? Is that where it kind of leads down from? I think it's it's definitely related. I don't know if it's like a direct connection to Paul. But yeah, I mean, definitely that idea of calling somebody father as like a sign of respect and a sign of their sort of status I mean, we also see that in, like, the godfather, right? Of, like, you are going to refer to this person with a term of respect to account for their status. Same, same kind of idea. Fair enough. That makes a little more sense now. So Paul is using this family language, and he is telling Philemon, I, you know, I'm sending Onesimus back to you. Um, I want you to do the right thing, which is to free him, not to keep him as a slave. And then uh, starting in verse 17, Paul writes, um, so if you consider me your partner, partner is a word, you know, for equals, people on the same footing. If you consider me your partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. So Paul is saying, Hey, Philemon, if you consider me an equal, 
you should consider Onesimus an equal. He's putting all three of them on the same status uh, level. That's such a good uh, for to like to be called out in front of your church and being like, hey, if you consider me, who obviously is a respected leader of the church, it's Paul. You know, if you see me as, you know, somebody that you can relate to or I see you that way, you should do this. That's what, that's what I think you should do. Like, how can, you can't say no. You can't. You're screwed. It's so, so effective. Yeah. No, Paul is a genius. And, and in reality, Philemon probably viewed Paul more in this like parental way, right? To like, for Paul to say, we're partners, we're equals, that would have been a huge compliment to Philemon. Mm -hmm. And Paul then flips that and uses it to say, well, Onesimus is also on the same level. Um, Don't you agree? And it's like, how can Philemon argue? How could he argue with this? And Paul goes on to say like, okay, like if he owes you money, if there's like a financial issue here, I, Paul, am going to make that right. I will pay off the debt. And he says, I say nothing about you owing me, even your own self. So Paul's like, hey, Philemon, I saved your soul. If this guy owes you 20 bucks, I'll make sure it's cleared. Like, Like in, in that case, it's like, how can you not just be like, no, I forgive it. I forgive the loan. Like, you can't expect... It's like going to your parents for most cases and being like hey uh i let you borrow that 20 that one time i need that back hey i gave you life and shelter and right supported you in all these other ways yeah even recently you still want to get into this like you know what you're right like it's a no argument situation it's just and paul is just packing this letter with those kinds of of things. And that's why I said, like, he is turning the pressure up and up and up on Philemon. It's not just one angle. It's like multiple angles of like, you'd better not make the wrong choice here. It's, it's a mess. Uh, I love it. In verse 20, uh, Paul refers to Philemon directly as brother. Again, brother, that would be sort of a term of equality, right? In, especially in the church, if you're talking about being brothers and sisters in Christ, it's like we're all on the same footing. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. This is the language that Paul uses in Galatians, right? There's no longer Jew or Greek. There's no longer slave or free. There's no longer male and female. All are one in Christ Jesus. So there's this like radical equality in the Christian community. And Paul's drawing on this here when he refers to Philemon as partner, as brother. It's like we are on even footing. So Paul says, like, yes, brother, confident of your obedience, I am writing to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. Again, just like Philemon, he is backed into a corner here. Uh, And then Paul says, by the way, I'm going to come visit you. So, like, get your shit in order. Not that I'm just going to come visit you, but you're going to set a place for me at your house. Like, you're going to get a guest room ready. Get your guest room ready. I, Paul, am coming to see you. Which in other circumstances, right, that would have been huge for Philemon, right? Like, what a get to be like, Paul's coming to visit and he wants to stay at my house. But now it's like further tipping the scales on are you going to do the right thing for Onesimus? So how, how, how could Philemon do anything different? We don't know what happened after this letter was received. The pre-narrative and the epilogue aren't included in scripture. We don't know. We don't have a reply from Philemon. We don't have a follow-up letter from Paul saying like, good job, buddy. But I have to assume, just given how effective this letter is, I have to assume it worked out the way Paul wanted it to. I hate to be that guy, but I feel like if it wasn't successful... They wouldn't have kept it. <laughs> They're like, oh, Paul really whiffed on that one. Yeah, like Paul was like all confident, went in there and like, nope. Philemon not only took him back, but then raised the stakes of what he owed or something like that. Like, can't really see them being like, you know what? Let's keep that end. This is probably sacrilegious, terrible to say, but Paul seems like he was a master manipulator. For sure. Yeah, I mean... Paul is so effective, and that's why his letters have been preserved, right? The early church knew, like, holy shit, 
This guy knows how to get people to do things. Um, and you can like dig into a lot of his letters and and he does this. He's so rhetorically effective, which is one of those things where it's like if you use it for good, that's great. And if you use it for evil, that's really bad. <laughs> right. That makes me think, like, is this a good thing, though? I mean, I know we're kind of skipping ahead to a wrap up discussion, so you can stop me if you want to. <laughs> um, is this a good way of doing things? Because I don't necessarily think it is because Philemon might have done it. But in his heart and brain, he was like, this is stupid. I can't believe I'm being pressured into this. And so I'm doing it, but that's not doing it for the right reason. It's doing it because you have to. It's it's like, oh, look at me. I'm I'm helping mm -hmm. these this group of people. But like, I have to do it. It's my work is like sponsoring community day or whatever. Right. I mean, I, I kind of wonder, like, what's the alternative? Because the truth is that, like, no one can force anyone to do anything. And you can apply rhetorical pressure like Paul does. You can apply threats of violence. You know, you can, there are ways to kind of increase the pressure on people. But ultimately, everybody makes their decisions, good or bad. And like, I kind of experienced this as a pastor, that there are often things where I'm like, I really wish that X parishioner would do whatever, right? Or, hey, these two people in my church are mad at each other, and I really just want them to talk it out and like be grownups. But you can't make that happen. And as a pastor, if you're like too heavy handed, then they just get mad at you. And then like, you're not accomplishing anything. So you kind of have to use this deft touch of like, I am going to appeal to your better nature. I am going to remind you of our shared values and identity. I am going to encourage you to do the right thing. But like, ultimately, people are going to do what they do. In the end, you can't control the outcome. And so I think Paul is really using his skills to the best of his ability to achieve a certain outcome, but that that is all he can do. He can't make Philemon do the right thing. And he certainly can't change Philemon's heart, you know? That's something that is beyond, like, human capability. I'm kind of reminded, actually, as, as you were talking about that, Josh, I was reminded of the story of Zacchaeus in the Gospels. Um, if you remember, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he? Yeah, he went up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. Anyway, um, the whole like deal with Zacchaeus is that he's a cheat and a thief. He was a tax collector, so he's already working for the empire. People hated tax collectors. And he was lining his own pockets. He was like taking an extra cut for himself. So just like a total scumbag. And... Jesus sees him and Jesus says, I'm going to your house, Zacchaeus. I'm going to eat with you today. And in response, Zacchaeus is like, I'm going to give back everything I stole from everyone, like multiple times over. I'm going to pay back what I have taken, which is, I think, a testament to like the power of encountering Jesus. But unless you are actually the son of God, I don't think you can force that kind of transformation. That's fair. Um, but it's like, like that's sort of what we are trusting the gospel can do, right? We're trusting that encountering the presence of God, the spirit of God, however you want to put it, will make that kind of radical transformation in people. And that's that's kind of, I don't know, it reminded me of this conversation about Philemon and whether or not Paul can actually make him change. I think Paul is relying on the gospel to make Philemon change. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I understand how you're saying it. I don't necessarily think I'm on the 100% on the same page because I feel like, you know, he's he's kind of making him, he is making him do it. I mean, because he's very like, hey, you should do this. But it's like, if he doesn't, he loses face with everyone. He either forgives this debt that he's owed or whatever, or he loses his reputation. <laughs> right. So he's kind of like, well, I'm either out my life or I'm out this much money or whatever yeah. he was owed for or what he paid for. It's just... It was just a no-win situation on some aspect for Philemon. Well, but, but just to kind of like throw a wrench into it, think about it from Onesimus's perspective. 
does it matter to Onesimus whether Philemon frees him because he's really had a change of heart or whether he frees him just to save face? Either way, Onesimus's life is concretely, fundamentally improved. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, he wins in this. Right. Because either he's an equal or if he goes back to being a slave, then everybody's going to judge his owner. (laughs) And then... He's going to have no yeah. point, like, choice but to, like, oh, yeah, he's still in my sleigh, but look, I'm treating him better. Like, there's no... Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess it kind of comes down to, like, is it still worth it that Philemon does the right thing, even if it's for the wrong reason? And, like, from the perspective of Philemon, maybe not, but from the perspective of, of Onesimus, definitely, right? Mm-hmm. Even if Philemon's doing it for the wrong reason, like, a person who was enslaved is freed, and that's, like, pretty central to the gospel. Jesus is the one who, like, breaks the chains and sets the prisoners free. Uh, so, yeah, it's, uh, I think it's a good outcome. I can just imagine this being read by, you know, the church leaders. And Philemon just sitting there, you little snitch. <laughs> oh, I'm going to go to Paul. And just, it's like a sibling going to the parent when you do something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But... Obviously, way bigger circumstances, way more important than that. But Well, and then, then Paul's coming back and being like, Philemon, I'm not mad at you. I'm just disappointed that you're doing this thing. And it's like, I mean, what are you going to do? What are you going to yeah, do? Yeah, that is, that is, that's a parent thing again. And that is just <laughs> shattering to like the core. Like, oh, cool. I disappointed dad. Right. I wish he would have just yelled at me. Now I'm gonna... Now I feel even worse. I'm gonna go back up to my room at 4.30 in the morning after that conversation I had with him. I'm not saying that was based on a true story. I would never come in late reeking of booze, which was not a good thing. But anyway. We will check back in with Josh's parents to see if that's a real story. I want to just briefly talk about uh, some of the wordplay in this letter, because that's also sort of a fun thing Paul is doing that doesn't necessarily come across in the English translation. And one of the things that uh, Paul is doing is um, he's kind of playing on the name Onesimus. Onesimus was apparently a common name uh, given to slaves because it literally means useful or profitable or beneficial. And so Paul says, this is in uh, verse 11, formerly Onesimus was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful both to you and to me. Um, so it's like this person is named useful. And Paul is saying, well, formerly he was useless, but now he's useful to both of us. And the other kind of wordplay that's going on there is the word useless is um, akreston, but Onesimus is now useful, eucreston. And both of those kind of sound like, like Christos sounds like Christos, which is Christ. So basically, there's kind of this double meaning. Paul is talking about usefulness and not usefulness, but you can also hear it as formerly he was without Christ, but now he is good in Christ or well in Christ. And so this idea of like, usefulness being sort of in the eyes of the world, right? Like you want a slave who is useful. And Paul is flipping that and saying, okay, but what if we had a different understanding of human beings? What if we understood Onesimus not based on his utility, but based on the fact that he is a fellow brother in Christ? So there's kind of some fun stuff going on there in the Greek that like, I just don't know how you would translate that into English. But yeah, so useless and useful, playing on Onesimus, and then also playing on uh, the idea of being in Christ, being good in Christ or well in Christ. The other thing that's fun in this letter is the word that's translated heart is, it does not literally mean heart. So yeah, so in verse 12, Paul is referring to Onesimus and says, I am sending him that is my own heart back to you. So he describes Onesimus as my own heart. And then a few verses later in verse 20, he says, refresh my heart in Christ. 
first of all, he's saying, Onesimus is my heart. And then at the end of the letter, he says, refresh my heart in Christ, which that means like take care of Onesimus, right? If Onesimus is Paul's heart. But in both places, the word that's translated as heart in Greek is splanktha, which literally means the guts. Or it can even refer to like the bowels, but it's like your your guts, like your intestines. Part of the reason for that is because in uh, Greek, the guts are like where emotions live. Like we think of the head and the heart, right? The head is for thinking and the heart is for feeling. And in Greek, your emotions come from your gut. And so that's part of what's going on there. And that's why I think they choose heart as a translation, because heart is what we associate with emotion. But it's also kind of funny that, I mean, there's almost something kind of scatological about it that Paul is like, I need you to refresh my guts. My, like, deep, gross innards need to be restored, and you're going to restore them by freeing Onesimus. So it's just kind of is an interesting rhetorical move. It's definitely very like visceral that Paul is not like, oh, you should do the right thing and everything's fine. He's like, no, my guts. You have to take care of my guts, which maybe sounds a little different in the translation. Yeah. Yeah, it really does. (laughs) I just remember we we did this uh, letter in my like epistles class in seminary. And we talked about that. We talked about, like, refresh the guts, refresh the guts of Paul by doing the right thing. Hmm. Also, the same word back in verse seven, uh, the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. The guts of the saints have been refreshed. Yeah, it just does not have the same romantic feel to it. Mm-mm, mm-mm. But also, if your, like, intestines are upset, that's not a fun feeling. Uh, can concur. <laughs> Someone that has intestinal problems. Yeah, yeah. We we know it's no fun. It's better better to have everything you know refreshed down there. <laughs> I'm gonna stop myself from making any <laughs> trying to make any puns because they'll just get disgusting and no one wants that. Yeah, it's gonna get real gross real fast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so Philemon is such. I think it's an interesting letter. It gets a lot of the core of Paul's theology. This idea of like being in Christ should radically restructure your whole life, right? That you can't be a Christian and then continue in the status quo of like power dynamics and, uh, you know, owning people as slaves and having financial power. It's like, no, if you're in Christ, everything is different. The whole board game has been upset. And that comes through really strongly here. I also just think it's interesting because it was, this letter was so misused in the uh, like pre-Civil War period in the United States that it's like a little bit outrageous. Um, There's actually a quote. So I, I drew for this episode on commentary I have called The Apostle of the Crucified Lord. And we'll uh, drop that in the episode description. But there's a quote in here from a uh, white Methodist missionary to slaves who like, so he's going to people who are enslaved in the American South and is like preaching on Philemon. And this is what he says. I was preaching to a large congregation on the epistle of Philemon. And when I insisted upon fidelity and obedience as Christian virtues in servants and upon the authority of Paul condemned the practice of running away, one half of my audience deliberately rose up and walked off. And those that remained looked anything but satisfied, either with the preacher or his doctrine. Co-signed old timey congregation who knew that like their bullshit detector was well calibrated. They were like, this this white man is going to come in here and tell us that we're not allowed to run away from slavery and that we have to be obedient to our masters. That's some bullshit. That's not what the Bible is about. And they're correct. They are 100% correct. That is not, yeah. It's just the exact opposite of what Paul instructed there. Like, I don't understand how, you, mm-hmm. like, I can understand maybe some verses every now and then getting me a people have differing opinions on them like because they read it different like that is pretty clear that hey forgive this person he's your equal yeah as you would see me as your yeah 
And the fact that, like, this letter is written to the slave owner and this preacher is preaching to slaves, right? Like, the the context is so different, obviously historically different, but also, like, there's a very different lesson if you are preaching to the person who has the power and you're saying you have to treat this person as your equal versus preaching to the slaves and being like, the status quo is fine. This is what God wants. Like, come on. Some nonsense. I always think of Dr. Horrible. Like, I'm going to upset the status quo because the status is not quo. Oh, goodness. Yeah, like, how do you misunderstand this letter that profoundly? I mean, and there's so many examples like that. We People still do it today. Like, hey... And I'm going to use women as an example. Like, hey, well, you dress a certain way. It's your fault. Like, what? No. I didn't ask for... Yeah, you didn't... It's just... It's frustrating. And it's just like, no, this is pretty clear. Like, I don't understand how this was even a question. You know you know what Jesus says about that, Josh? If a woman is dressed provocatively and is, like, tempting you, the correct thing to do, according to Jesus is to pluck out your own eyes so you can't see her anymore. I don't really think that's a verse that we need to acknowledge. <laughs> uh, let's focus on uh, that one from Leviticus that, uh, you know, you can't wear clothes of two different fabrics. Yeah, uh-huh. It's very interesting. Like, people deliberately abuse scripture and have for hundreds and hundreds of years but I, I really like uh, this letter to Philemon. I think there's a lot of really interesting stuff in there, and it's packed into just a very short little document. So go read it for yourself and, uh, you know, let us know what you think. Yeah, um, it's, it's a little weird. I know I say that a lot about a lot of things we talk about the Bible. It's a little weird, but... The Bible is pretty weird. Yeah, it's definitely uh, something to look at. And yeah, if you are confused by it, I pulled up just some basic YouTube videos to try to help me understand the story. And like once they gave, hey, this was a runaway slave, escaped slave, going to Paul for help. And Paul's like, no, you obviously have to go back. But here's what we're going to do. It puts things in a whole different context. Now people don't even need to go watch the YouTube videos because they've just listened to our podcast. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And we've laid it all out. Done and done. But also, you know, read and develop your own opinions because... We could be wrong. For sure. It's happened once. For sure. All right, Jenny, you want to take us home? Yeah. Uh, thank you all for listening. Again, I will put that commentary in the episode description. We will see you next time. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. Thanks for listening to Irreverent Bible Talk. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or find us at soundcloud.com slash irreverentbible. And remember, just like Balaam and his donkey learned, sometimes even God communicates through a talking ass.